The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the views of Emory University or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we learn about the voices shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here with Jennifer Hickey today, our postdoctoral fellow here at the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative. Thank you for being here today, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the current coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic that is sweeping the globe. It is a topic that is ripe for vulnerability analysis. So let's just talk a little bit about what's going on right now, just to situate ourselves in time. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, first of all, you know, we're, we're doing this remotely, right? So, you know, at, at this point, I think uh, most people in the U.S. are in doing some form of sheltering in place as a result of this pandemic. It's uh, been going on now, I guess, what has it been like a month now that things have kind of been escalating, I guess, tremendously, at least just in the U.S. I think it was January or so that we started to first see the issues coming out of China, um, if I'm correct. So, you know, we're several months in, I guess, globally um, to, to what's going on. Um, and, and I think, you know, things have really been ramping up here in the U.S., you know, within the past month, uh, as we're seeing, you know, more and more people getting the virus, um, you know, unfortunately more deaths from the virus. Uh, and it's really basically changed our society fairly rapidly um, in terms of, you know, how we're attempting to respond to, you know, both the, the I guess, the fact that it's so infectious um, as well as, you know, some of the complications um, that it can create and, you know, the mortality that's associated with that. So, uh, yeah, as you said, it's it's ripe for vulnerability analysis for sure. This is, you know, um, a public health crisis that I, I don't think we've really seen, at least not in modern times before. Yeah. And one of the issues that is really overwhelming a lot of countries, especially the United States, is that our healthcare systems are not equipped to deal with something of this magnitude. We don't have the supplies. We don't have the people. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, you know, a huge part of it. Um, I think, yeah, I, I mean, even just if you look at something like the, the face mask issue, I think that's been coming up a lot, you know, that we're seeing healthcare professionals, they don't have something as basic as face masks to protect themselves, you know, while they're responding to these crises. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that that's happening. And we're seeing, I think, it's interesting to kind of see people, society, civil society kind of stepping up to help try to fill that void. You know, I'm, I'm constantly personally seeing Facebook posts about people sewing masks themselves, yeah. making them and yeah. sending them to health professionals, but it's still just not enough. And that's just, you know, a very basic supply. I mean, then you've got things like ventilators, um, you know, which I believe are also in short supply. And like you said, yeah. staffing issues, the hospitals are overwhelmed. Um, and of course, you know, we were not as fast to implement testing um, as we should have been. And I think that's also huge. We don't really now even accurately know how many people have this virus. Right. And from reports that are coming out from other countries, it sounds like the death rate is between what, three and 10 percent? Yeah, it's very high. I know in the early days, and I don't, I don't know if this is still true. I meant to, to look at this, but I know in the early days, 
you know, the overall mortality rate was not as serious as the flu. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of plays into a little bit, I think about that foreshadows what we're going to talk about with vulnerability analysis. But I think that the, you know, the initial thing, a lot of people were kind of pushing back on is saying, you know, why are we treating this as such a big deal? It's not as deadly as the flu, you know, despite the fact that even then we were seeing higher mortality rates in certain populations like the elderly. Um, But I think now perhaps we've kind of surpassed that narrative um, in in terms of the overall mortality rate too. Let's talk a little bit about the state responses. Yeah. So I guess, you know, first of all, there's been a lot of criticism, um, you know, specifically, I'll talk a little bit more specifically about the U.S. Um, There's been a lot of criticism just in terms of how slow we were to take this seriously. Um, You know, so I think there's that whole aspect of, you know, some of the things that, that Trump did that maybe shouldn't have been done and vice versa, um, you know, in the early days, treating the virus as a hoax um, and, and some of the other things that, you know, are right to be criticized. But in general, I think other than being slow to act, I think, you know, there's still issues with, with state responses um, just in terms of governments being reluctant to, to fully, you know, shut down things as necessary, um, telling individuals to stay home and shelter in place. We've, you know, we've been very slow and, and still haven't really gotten official um, instructions to do so. I think there's been a reluctance from the state, and this is where I think we'll kind of get more into vulnerability theory, but there's been a reluctance of the state to, you know, essentially shut down the economy, to do anything that would sacrifice the economy you know, in favor of trying to slow the spread of the pandemic. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see small measures put in place, and, and that includes, you know, the social safety nets as well, just now passing a stimulus package and, and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think our, our culture, particularly in America, has been such that, you know, the government has been slow to react, both in terms of, you know, implementing measures to slow the spread, as well as in terms of providing, you know, social services that are needed for people who, you know, can't just stay home. <laughs> you know, they, they're, I mean, they have jobs, they need to go to work, you know, they have to get groceries. I mean, these are things that need to be addressed um, that I think, you know, we're just now starting to see, and, and even more so probably on the local level. Um, so there's issues of federalism in the state response as well that I think are interesting. So it seems like a lot of cities and counties have been able to get these shelter-in-place orders or to get businesses to close and to have gyms, like what they consider non-essential businesses, just completely shut down or to have very limited hours. I know in Atlanta, the mayor of Atlanta has required restaurants to move to takeout only and delivery only at this point. What do you think of these smaller citywide level measures? And do you think that this is something that the federal government would eventually put into place? Do you think that it's something that the federal government could put into place? And what ideas about the purpose and place of the government play into that? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think cities and counties, you know, that have implemented these types of orders, and I think, you know, at least here in Georgia, as you mentioned, it's fairly common, I think, with all the metro Atlanta 
um, counties and cities at this point have done some measure of, of what you're describing, shutting down businesses, ordering residents to stay home. Um, you know, but I think there's been a general feeling that that directive should have come at least from the state level, if not the federal level. Um, I know, you know, even like the mayor of Atlanta, for example, you know, is calling on Governor Kemp to issue these same type of orders statewide because it's chaos. You know, we have Georgia is a particularly interesting example because we have such a huge number of local governments. I think we have the, the highest number of counties um, of any state in the nation, something like 180, I think, or close to. And then as well as county governments, you have municipal governments. So it's, uh, you know, it's just ripe for a very inconsistent response. Um, and I'm not even sure, you know, with, with various areas of rural Georgia, what they're doing right now. Um, you know, and I think it's, again, you know, looking at kind of the, the whole neoliberal deification of the market and, and feeling like, you know, not wanting to, to interfere with individual liberties, I think has been one of the reasons why, at least at the state and the federal level, you know, government has been slow to, to take these measures to shut down businesses, to tell people they have to stay at home um, because, you know, the American culture in particular is, is not well suited for that sort of thing. And I think there's a certain amount of, I know there's a certain amount of, you know, worry about, I guess, political economy for some of these politicians at the higher levels. Whereas I feel like at the local level, you know, there is some of that, but for the most part, these people are just trying to do what's right and what's safe for their local communities. Um, so, you know, a lot of them are stepping up, but it, it shouldn't necessarily be that way. Um, I think, you know, a, a stronger federal response or even just a state response, you know, would be more ideal in this situation. How would a responsive state handle this situation? Right. So, I mean, I think, again, there's kind of two aspects to that. You know, one, I think, first and foremost, since the responsive state is, you know, primarily concerned with providing its citizens with tools that needs to achieve resilience, you know, the social safety net is a huge factor in that. So, you know, first of all, even just looking at the healthcare system, right? I mean, it's, it's problematic that it's, as you mentioned, so difficult to even handle the load that this is creating on the system. Um, but even just at the individual level, people who actually need medical treatment, um, you know, it's going to potentially cost them enormous sums of money to do so because we don't have any sort of, um, you know, public universal health care. Um, and, you know, all the way down to just the socioeconomic factors that, that come into play here, you know, as we talked about before, people who can't afford to stay home, you know, they can't get their groceries delivered. <laughs> they have jobs that they can't work remotely from, um, or they can't work at home because they no longer have childcare, uh, because that's been an issue. I mean, you know, as you um, mentioned, you know, with, with some of the local responses, I know at least here um, in our area of Atlanta, schools are closed, you know, until for, for I think at least two months at this point, by the time it's all over, you know, and they've switched to distance learning, which is, you know, a great and appropriate response to, to keep the pandemic from spreading. But all of a sudden there are all of these parents whose children are at home. They don't know how to teach them. They don't have time to teach them, you know, on top of trying to maintain a job. So there's just a basic level of economic security that needs to be met by the state and, and, you know, 
there's been obviously some attempt to do that with the stimulus that's been that's been passed. But again, that was slow to come and probably arguably is is not enough um, to keep Americans actually able to to fully do their part to slow the spread of this pandemic. Um, so I think that's one aspect. That's one way in which the the state needs to respond. Um, but you know, again, I think it's bigger than that in terms of just the attitude that's kind of been fostered by our lack of responsive state, by our focus on the market, you know, as the solution for all of our problems, um, because it's sort of created, I guess, this this culture of individualism um, that has created a whole host of other problems. It's not also not keeping people indoors, right? <laughs> so you can look at things like, um, I guess, so one side of the equation is, what does the state give us that will that will support us, you know, materially in order to keep us at home? But also, how does the state actually help from a social standpoint in in making sure people understand the importance of slowing the spread of the virus? You know, because you've heard a lot of like the spring breakers are still out on the beaches, and you know, there's a lot of of that going on. And you look at countries like China and, and some of their, I guess, what we would consider more authoritarian responses, um, tracking people on their cell phones if they leave the house and, and penalizing them. Um, what should the state's role be to kind of go, I guess, somewhere in between those, perhaps, or maybe not. Um, but, you know, there's a social aspect, I think, that the state needs to support as well to, to help people understand um, that this is a collective responsibility we have to distance from each other right now and slow the spread of the virus. You spoke a bit about regular Americans sewing masks for local hospitals and clinics that don't have the personal protective equipment to keep their employees safe. Many state and local representatives are lauding these community efforts while at the same time neglecting to urge government support for people who have lost their jobs or can't work. And these same clinics and hospitals that are in desperate need for supplies and, and aid. What are your views on all of that? It's, it's complicated, I think, the relationship between civil society and the state, you know, in terms of responsibility for this. Um, you know, I think in, in the idealized world, it's a cooperative effort. But, you know, it's interesting because... I mean, it would hard to be. It would be hard to to characterize what's going on in these smaller groups as anything other than you know beautiful. I mean, it's it's really nice to see communities coming together and you know humans helping one another and and kind of rising to this challenge um, as united as we can. And again, I think you touched on an aspect of kind of recognizing privilege, um, you know, in some ways, like understanding that those of us who are able to work from home, you know, or, or not suffering financially can kind of step in and help those, you know, who are not as privileged in this situation. Um, and I think that that's great. I think it, you know, it's been, like I said, kind of beautiful to see humans coming together and it gives you this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, um, you know, that a lot of us are kind of stepping in and, and working as a community. Um, and I do believe there's always a role in that. I mean, there's always a role in, in small groups, um, you know, organizing to make things better. Um, but I, I also think it does potentially sometimes tend to overshadow, you know, the focus on the state as being, 
I guess, the provider of these things ultimately. So I, I think it's really easy to confuse um, community spirit or I guess a feeling like we're stepping in because the particular leaders that we have are failing us. Um, I think there's that sentiment versus, you know, just minimal government involvement as an ideal. Does that make sense? So like I'm seeing a lot of, I'm seeing, for example, I, I recently saw a, something um, on social media from a local politician, like a state representative. And they were saying, you know, essentially, I think it was, they were quoting Mother Teresa, but it was essentially like applauding you know, the fact that the community has stepped in to lead themselves in this time of crisis. And it's like, I, I think that the point of the message was that our leader is failing us. Like, I think in that specific example, it was directed at our governor because he hasn't issued a full, you know, shelter in place order and hasn't shut businesses down fully. But I felt in that moment that it was, it was a little worrisome to have a political leader you know, making that kind of a statement because it seemed to me like it was essentially, you know, could easily be interpreted as just saying we don't need the government, you know, we can just do this ourselves, that it's not the government's responsibility, you know, to be helping us through this and providing us the resources we need. And so I think I worry in this time that, you know, those lines are kind of getting blurred where it's, it's, it's great that we're helping each other as communities. And I think we need that. I think we need that as a tool of resilience in and of itself, right? That social connection, that feeling like we're doing something to help other people. Um, and I think, again, it's necessary when the government you have is failing to do its job. But I just, you know, would reiterate that I would be concerned that kind of like the applauding of these like local stories and, and such um, overshadows the responsibility that we should be feeling from you know, or imposing upon the government and, and a calling for accountability for their failure to do that. This huge groundswell of individuals trying to help each other and coming together to create personal protective equipment for people who need it and don't have it and trying to like provide services and to provide goods and some sort of economic safety for people who are unable to like leave their houses right now. It almost, um, it almost validates this idea that the government's place, like the government's rightful place is in the market mm -hmm. and only the market. And like you were saying, it is really, it is a bit worrisome because although it is like you're saying, like a beautiful and wonderful thing at the same time, it sort of provides, I guess, fodder for the idea that you know, the government doesn't need to help people out because people will help each other out. And it, I think obscures the fact that so many people are still falling through the cracks, like people that the government could and should be helping. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, even another more extreme example is you're looking now at like entrepreneurs and businesses that are being applauded for stepping up to help. Um, I think it's just like the next level of concern over abdication of government responsibility. Um, so again, it's great. But if you think, I think it was something like maybe Tesla that was uh, had started producing ventilators or, or something of that nature. And again, this is needed and this is wonderful, but it's, it's concerning the way it's portrayed sometimes, you know, because especially if you're looking at something like businesses or entrepreneurs, then I really think you're also sending the message again that the market will take care of everything, right? Like all we have to do is support the market. And as long as these businesses are, you know, economically thriving, then they'll step in and help whenever is needed as well. So I think that's kind of, 
another level of, that's concerning from, from that perspective. And I think there's this understanding right now that like our communities, our cities, our states, our, our nation, this globe, like this is our community, it belongs to us. But there seems to, what seems to be missing is the idea that the government is also ours, <laughs> like it belongs to us. <laughs> and because it is ours and is responsible for us, it should be taking care like of the needs of the people. If you use a vulnerability lens, what do you think the government should be doing right now to step up and provide services that right now are not being provided or are being provided perhaps not in the best way by private citizens? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's tough because, I mean, essentially, yes, we do believe the government should be responsive and, of course, provide everything that's needed for resilience. And I think we've talked a little bit about the socioeconomic you know, conditions that, that need to be addressed. I mean, just flat out money, <laughs> you know, as, as one thing. Some of this, I think, is more almost like we would have to be retroactive in thinking about this because we should have been prepared for this crisis before it happened. And I'm not sure now, you know, exactly what they can or should do in terms of like the shortage of supplies and, and things of that nature. But I think, again, you know, your point about just generally whose responsibility it should be, you know, and making sure that doesn't get lost in the narrative, I think is is very important. But, you know, in terms of specific measures, you know, other than a stronger response to ensuring that the pandemic doesn't spread, economic stimulus for, you know, individuals who can't work and, and resources for hospitals and things of that nature. What vulnerabilities are coming to light right now as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, so I think, you know, one thing that was interesting um, that, you know, Professor Feynman herself talked about a little bit, I think, recently, you know, is the thing about coronavirus in particular as, as kind of a public crisis is that, you know, it really kind of brings to light the universal vulnerability that we all share by nature of being embodied, right? Because aside from the material conditions that might make one more likely to be exposed to the virus, I mean, we are basically universally vulnerable to this. Anybody can get it. And while it exacerbates existing conditions in some more than others, you know, this is essentially almost unique in terms of public events or crises that can equally affect everyone, you know, globally. Um, and so I think, again, because vulnerability theory starts with the idea that we're universally vulnerable by nature of embodiment, this sort of pandemic is kind of like the exact thing that really brings that to light. All of a sudden, we kind of all realize that we're fragile um, and we're susceptible to you know, whether it's the actual coronavirus itself or, you know, all of the conditions that the shelter in place and the business shuts down have, have kind of brought to light. How does this reflect the values that we hold regarding autonomy and human capital? Yeah, so I think, you know, again, we touched on this briefly, but I, I would like to, I guess, talk a little bit more kind of about that idea. Um, just hyper-individualization, I think, is a, a term I saw recently that someone was talking about in, in respect to um, how the pandemic is, is affecting America in particular. Um, so I think, you know, our focus on individual autonomy, you know, is very well seen in a lot of the responses to um, when the government has kind of stepped in to take measures to prevent the spread. You know, there's a lot of people who feel like it's government overreach. Um, and again, I think that you mentioned earlier this idea that the 
you know, the citizen and the community response is, is in some ways making it seem more like we're separate from the government. And I think that that's another piece to it essentially is that a lot of people really only look at government as again, in the neoliberal market oriented society we have, you know, we're primarily concerned with making sure the government doesn't interfere <laughs> as opposed to, you know, proactively providing things that we need for resilience. So, um, that, you know, a love of individual autonomy kind of comes through again in people sort of, you know, disobeying the order to, to stay in place. This isn't affecting me, so I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to cancel my spring break plans. Um, you know, and I think that that culturally, you know, makes us uniquely in some ways <laughs> uh, vulnerable to, to the pandemic spread because people are not used to thinking socially uh, here in the U.S. because of kind of the neoliberal philosophy and the love of autonomy. Um, and I think, too, that it's interesting, um, especially early on when a lot of the focus was on, you know, certain vulnerable populations, right? So this idea that it was just the elderly and just the immunocompromised as though those are not important people <laughs> in our society. So this idea that like this virus is really only going to affect those people. And so I don't need to worry about it, you know, and, and again, it's this kind of hyper individualism, you know, as well as a, a kind of a, scary disregard for certain segments of the population. And I guess now we've moved away somewhat from that narrative, although I think technically our, our state's latest order still orders only those particular populations to be the ones who shelter in place. So, you know, there is still some of that narrative going on, but it's really interesting to see that even in the extreme cases, right? Like I think the Lieutenant Governor of Texas talking about how older people would be willing to sacrifice themselves for the economy. Just this idea that it's not affecting me, it's not affecting you know, my relationship with the market. And, and so I think our American values of individual autonomy have played a huge role in causing more spread essentially um, of the pandemic. When we emerge on the other side of this, what values do you hope might now exist in the public sphere? Well, certainly, you know, I, I hope that we've learned to think a little bit more collectively um, and socially and, and to understand that it isn't just about us as individuals. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, I've, I've been heartened, I think, by, you know, the overall response. You know, there are obviously, like we said, a lot of people who don't think they need to be sheltering in place. But, you know, a lot of the population has stepped up. Like you said, they've stepped up to help, you know, people who need it. And they realize that, you know, they need to make some sacrifices for the greater good of the pu public health. And I think more of that kind of social responsibility and collective mindedness, I think I'd love to, to make sure that we come out the other side kind of keeping that in mind, right? Thinking about others more, realizing that it's not just about our individual circumstances. Um, so I think that's one thing. And then I think another to, again, you know, to realize we need a more responsive state, you know, to change that narrative of we don't want the government interfering because I think like most people are not going to feel too bad about the government interference when a check shows up in their mailbox, you know? So I, I like, I kind of want people to hold on to that, right? That if nothing else, if that's the only thing that you get out of this, that you do feel good that the government sent you money essentially and provided you with some sort of social safety net. So I think appreciation for 
a strong social safety net and, and changes to our healthcare system and, and the things that we need to be calling upon the government to do, you know, in order to prevent something like this from happening in the future and to take care of us when it does. Thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer, and agreeing to do this interview over Zoom. I know it's not ideal. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability, a podcast of vulnerability and the human condition initiative at Emory University School of Law. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative and on Twitter at VHC Initiative. Thanks for tuning in.